Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who's pretty obviously not a boatman. <laughs> if I'm being am, honest, pretty am, obviously just not what his actual job is. I am the Adam Glass, and uh, boating is hard. I, uh, I, <laughs> I had. Like, I mean, you walk I, up to a dude and you're like, "Could you take me on your boat?" And the bo- dude's like, "Oh yeah, my boat that's over here, <laughs> that is totally my boat." And not just the thing I'm going to take in order to kidnap you and your children, I promise, from this shady priestess lady. Yeah, well. It's all cool. After they after they sell uh, everyone into slavery, they'll be able to buy Get voting boat. lessons? And <laughs> no, I, go to the, join the yacht club and actually learn what the fuck they're doing? I had, at work this week, I, I had a very small party of people who... Uh, the uh, the name of the group suggested it is some sort of family handling the estate of uh, of a patriarch um, and discussing okay, wow. discussing okay. the finances the finances of a uh, a trust left in their name. Okay, um, uh, but for some reason, uh, for like a half hour, every time I walked into the room, uh, they were complaining about uh, other people who didn't understand boating law and boating custom. <laughs> wow, what a what a thing, man. Like what yeah. a what a thing to just be talking about with your family, like hanging around the yeah. hanging around like your dinner table and be like, you know what? Fuck Dave. He doesn't know anything <laughs> about boating law. Doesn't even respect boating law. Motherfucker. He just oh man, unbelievable. What a what a boating law ignorer. Before we get much farther, I want to say that Donovan Hill is joining us this week. Say hi, An Donovan. expert on boating law, by hi, the way. Hi, everybody. Donovan, uh, you're a lawyer. Do you know a lot about boating law? Uh, I know when it comes to boating law, there's basically two types. Okay. There is the like conventional sort of freshwater boating law of like, you know, rivers, lakes, okay. ponds, etc. in America, which is largely going to be governed by shipping contracting stuff or in the case of like small lakes and so on local law about you know how and when you can take your boat out etc which only applies to rich people basically by definition since (laughs) they're the only ones with luxury boats (laughs) yeah um or or uh leisure boats um and then there's international law with regards to uh you know Boating. That's where you get uh, here. And that, like the rest of international law, the United States does not acknowledge <laughs> applies to it whatsoever and will just do whatever it wants, the same as the rest of international law. That, uh... where, where every treaty we sign, literally we sign saying, we are in favor of this treaty, however it can never be used against us, or we, nor can we ever be bound or forced to abide by it, except voluntarily, and it cannot ever be... We reserve the right to refuse jurisdiction in any and all courts for violations of this treaty. We do not acknowledge we can be bound by it, just that we voluntarily, temporarily agree 
that as long as we find it convenient, we will think about abiding by it. So it could be uh, that Which I makes was America misunderstanding. Super popular, yeah. let me tell you. Maybe well, I, I have to say, you. I still to this day think that uh, the international law class I took in law school, in a in an already in the framework of law school to begin with, so a swindle to start with. <laughs> Was the biggest swindle because it's an entire semester to tell you what I just told you, which is international law is totally meaningless from an American perspective because America categorically denies that it applies to America, will never abide by it, doesn't acknowledge it can be bound by it. And anything it does sign literally comes with the caveat. uh, We agree to follow this only so long as we voluntarily desire to it can never we can never be held to it yeah despite literally agreeing to it by another party yeah we, we will not show up to court we will send a letter saying we do not acknowledge your court's ability to stand in judgment of america and we routinely take 40 years to sign on to those agreements to begin with yes right uh, agreements that we're not actually really signing on to in the first place yeah. we're like mm, this is going to take us 30 years to america out. treats all of international law as a non-binding resolution yeah yeah, but it's binding on everyone else. So yeah, us. well, and you know, it has it, it has its, it does have its benefits, uh, not not in like really long term practical effects, but for me personally, because America does not actually uh, recognize the about ability for a person, an American citizen, to renounce their citizenship overseas, it is actually impossible. Uh, you can't do it. It's impossible. <laughs> I... So even if you go to a court in another country and say. I want your citizenship. I'm renouncing my American citizenship. Guess what? Still an American citizen. Tough shit. Have you done that, Pat? Is that, is that uh, all? Jab- basically, all, 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 um, almost all um, dual citizenship people in the world do that yeah. because almost every other country has a law that says you uh, you can only have the one. Ci- not every country, but a lot of countries do. Japan does. Has yeah. a law saying you can only have one citizenship. So you, they require at some age point that's set in the treaty between the two countries for you to go do that in court in that country and say, I want your citizenship. I'm renouncing my American citizenship. But guess what? You can't do that. America says no. No, America says you're still an American citizen because, I mean, they want your taxes, basically. Well, it's a tough shit. Uh, you're paying with every- that, and they reserve the right to extradite you. And force other right, countries yeah, to yeah, they can, exactly. You for also whatever can't use insane human rights abuse your, America yeah. wants to do to you. Yeah, and also is that you can't use it as a dodge to get out of being held accountable for breaking the law in America either. Like it's just you just yeah. It so seems, it kind of goes both. It, it's a minor benefit, but it is it is a minor benefit that favors my mine and many many other families in yeah. Japan because you can actually maintain dual citizenship, which is actually a, not legal in the United States. You cannot have dual citizenship, but. Because they refuse to sign any treaties that actually require them to follow anybody else's laws. Interesting. It's totally unenforced. It's weirdly unenforceable. It's ridiculous. With everything we've learned in the last two minutes, uh, I will say maybe I misunderstood the conversation that family was having, and it was actually a deeply political conversation where they were criticizing America for not respecting boat law. That's possible. Uh, That's really possible. I will say that also, Adam, in a move that will not surprise you, uh, literally every international law case while Scalia was on the bench is where this policy, like if you ever needed a guy who was absolutely at the head of uh, the notion that America could ever be held accountable for its actions on the world stage was morally and existentially offensive to him. It was Scalia. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah, that, that, that all makes sense. That, 
Yeah, he he literally every time there was anything about like uh you know someone saying like well you did agree to sign this international shipping contract blah 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 Scalia was always leading the charge to say so what make tell them to make us <laughs> which uh, is a, which is know. a which is a wild framework to operate a country on right like and literally no other country op- like basically yeah no like other come make come with your guns and way. make us do it is a fucking wild ass way to to operate in a world right like yeah no wonder we have so much internal problems because it's like well we also operate as a government on the same principle that every single person who refuses to pay fucking ranching fees operates on which is coming fucking china me china also does quite a bit of this to some extent nowadays and japan recently has started to dip its toes in the but what if we just said what are you going to do about it water yeah well Uh, you're not actually going to military you will not actually take military action against us which is the only thing that can stop us from just breaking the treaty and doing whatever we want so fuck you yeah these whales are going to die motherfucker yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, yes, and this is a whole a whole thing, for goodness sake. The, the I was going to say, thing. Pat is probably a better place to it's, talk it about the whaling it's, controversy, but... It's it's abhorrent, but, like, you know, it, at this point, you know, I kind of almost can't even blame them because the response to everything else by every other country they deal with is the same. So it's like, fuck it, let's just all... I mean, rules just don't matter anymore. It's fucking whatever. Yes, I mean, Japan has realized what America has known for generations, which, which is, is just rules just don't There are no rules shit. except yeah. the ones you voluntarily agree to. And by the way, you can voluntarily unagree to them whenever you want. Yeah. <sighs> and you know, yeah, you know, and they cuz they keep and then part of that is probably literally interacting with the United States, which does that all the time to them, right. which is just This like, has been oh, Sancho We signed the this bailiff. agreement. Oh, you there don't care no about such this thing as law. It is total anarchy. The human race is doomed. It can never possibly cooperate with itself uh, in the interests of peace and prosperity. Excellent. The podcast. The podcast. Hey, before we talk about the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon real quick. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you can get access to a bonus episode. Uh, We uh, watch some pretty fun stuff over there. Donovan's been on quite a few episodes over there as well, including my absolutely favorite, uh, the Alien episode. Aliens, rather. uh, Truly our high point, honestly. Ended up being like two hours long. Um, But more recently, he's been on uh, an episode for Ready Player One. uh, (laughs) Which he did not enjoy. Yeah, Uh, we had an interesting, but it was a good conversation we had about it. Uh, Other things we want to talk about, there are no rules, just fuck it, do whatever. (laughs) Crime reigns supreme, fucking right. To be fair, there are no rules, fuck it, do whatever. Yeah. Um, Is an accurate description of humanity. (laughs) That's fair. Um, but we do we do a lot of a lot of fun stuff over there. We've watched some uh, some much more uh, austere movies. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Failsafe, which is now in the Criterion Collection. Uh, Louis Malle's God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead. What is that? <laughs> that is not a Louis Malle <laughs> no, movie. I'm good with it. I, I love it. The I, gods I, must be crazy. No, Louis Malle. Louis Malle decides to write Malle's make a God's really country. shitty movie. Man. <laughs> God's not dead. Oh man, God's beautiful. not dead. It might actually be worth watching. Um, probably actually, yeah. which is crazy. We have not about. watched God's Not Dead over there, and I have no plans to put it on a vote. Uh, but um, but Molly's God's Country is a is a fascinating documentary on uh, on small town America in the Midwest in the eighties. Um, we've watched uh, some real utter garbage over there as well. Um, most recently, Blank Check. Uh, which is oh god i i want to can we not ever talk about that again 
please. <laughs> I will gladly not talk about. Blank Can we agree that, that this is movie. this is this is this is just a no go zone now? It's verboten. We're just not going to do it anymore. Right. But if you want to hear those bonus episodes, all these non-criterion movies, oh, God, uh, movie. or vote on what we're going to watch, and Kazam is always a choice on that vote. We have watched it once. You guys have been uh, dropping the ball and making us watch Kazam for every movie. <laughs> which is which is fine by me. Kazam. I, I'd hate to watch Kazam so much <laughs> that I begin version, to hate Gazam. it. The new version, Kazam. Sorry. <laughs> Kazam. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, uh, over there, patreon.com slash lost in criterion. Just a dollar a month gets you the vote and gets you access to the new and all of the old bonus episodes. For a little extra $5 a month, we'd like to thank the people at that level on air and thank you to Adam Spickerman for that support. Uh, a little above that, we do something that uh, I think is pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little thank you note, and mail that out to you. We also like to thank the people at that level on air. So thank you to Jason Westhaver and Michael McGrath for your continued yes, $10 you so and above support. Very grateful for that. This week we are talking about uh, a second movie from Kenji Mizuguchi. We have watched, uh, what was that, Ugetsu uh, before in the past. Yep. Um, we have not seen a lot from him. Uh, other than that, this is Sancho the Bailiff, released in 1954, an incredibly depressing period piece. Yeah, uh, based I, well, on yeah. based on a folk tale. Uh, to be fair, it's dealing with an incredibly depressing time period. Yes, that time period. Uh, how do you say that? The uh, Heian, the Heian era, the Heian era, and that would be. Early Middle Ages, we're talking seven hundred um, to Yeah, I mean it depends. Yeah, it would it would be early Middle Ages. The problem is like honestly, like they people like to do that, but like honestly, Japanese history doesn't track Right, right. Doesn't to, track to, to to what we talk about yeah. when we talk about Middle yeah. Ages and Western history. Yeah. That's fair. Um It would be more more accurately defined as like a a, a, a early medieval period. Yeah. Uh, but even then it's it's that's all just hot air because it doesn't really mean anything it's its own thing right same with like chinese history right like it's a it's its own thing we can't yeah it just doesn't work very well yeah uh we do have a few more from mizuguchi in uh the criterion collection and quite a bit more in the eclipse collection uh if you want to go that route but we don't because we've got enough to watch with the criterion (laughs) we're never going to finish this (laughs) we're never going to finish the criterion collection anyway so it doesn't matter uh Oh, but yeah, this is, I, as I said, this is particularly based on a short story version of the tale by uh, Mori Ogai. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't have the thing. I think it was something like that. I don't yeah. have, I, I, I accidentally closed the, yeah. the thing. Um, but but uh, it is. I can look. Yeah, the classic Morty Oga, Pat yeah, response. Yeah, f- that sounds fine. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what are you yeah. gonna do, right? Like me and me and I have been going back and forth on Japanese name pronunciation. I for really like can't do fucking it. Six I just years can't. now. Anyway, that's uh, true. He pronounces the, all of them like they're Spanish. So that is that <laughs> is a version of this tale written down in the uh, El Hideo La Kojima. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, written down in the, uh, I believe, 1920s. Um, 
But the uh, the story this is based off of is ancient. It is oral tradition. It is yeah. It dates from the Heian period, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. It's, people were just telling each other insanely depressing stories before <laughs> yeah. the advent of film. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and the sad part is, is keep in mind that like probably, in, in, in th- this isn't even the most depressing version of this. If you if you live through those time periods, this legitimately might be semi uplifting. Compared to what th- was yeah, actually going on, at least one person lived. Technically, one person lives, end. and the slaves are freed. Like, I mean, legitimately, the slaves are freed, which is better than anything that happened before whatever, like fifteen seventy one or whatever, whatever year they they flee. You know, whatever year Japan realized, oh, slaves are like a ridiculous idea yeah. that we shouldn't do anymore. Yeah, on the on the Criterion DVD, there's an interview with uh, first assistant director uh, Takuzo uh, Tanaka. Uh, in which he talks about how uh, Mizuguchi really wanted this to be absolutely historically accurate uh, to the point where uh, they had to do all the research to make it historically accurate. And then the only way he got uh, he got Mizuguchi to agree to use like an anachronistic vase was to say, well, the real one's in the National Museum, so we can't use that. But here's one that kind of looks like it. Well, you know, <laughs> but the you weird way. The weird thing about it, right, is that, like, the, the you know, so I, like, I already knew some of this, a lot, a decent amount of this from just from work. Yeah. But um, the weird thing is, is my impression that I've always had, and, and all the data I have is fairly, ma- matches this, is that slavery has always been relatively rare in Japan. Yeah. Like, it is, it has always been a sort of, like, strange thing that doesn't happen that much. So, like, Heian period, like, legal slavery existed. Uh, but only, you can even find it, you can find it on even, like, the Wikipedia page for Japanese slavery. But, like, is uh, only, like, 5% of the population, on the according to that. And I, I was under the impression it was slightly higher than that. But 5% like, practicing or 5% enslaved? 5% of the population. Enslaved. Yeah, is, was enslaved. Okay. But, like, on a, on a relative scale, like, it, it you know... For an entire country, that's a lot of people. That's, like, let's be yeah. clear here. But you know, I mean, it is not. You know, when you're watching this movie, you're like, "Oh shit, everybody's a slave," and, and it's a little, maybe a little bit. Uh, <laughs> little well, much, but uh, Mr. Gucci, uh, it was only again, most of the people that yeah. were slaves, well, not everybody. Again, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, go ahead. According to Tanaka, again, uh, Mr. Gucci literally just wanted to make a film. About the horrors of the slave system, yeah, uh, and and then uh, obviously, and this film still functions, uh, but his his original idea maybe functioned a little more as a analogy for the imperial war machine. Oh um, yeah, and for sure, it works really well that uh, yeah. way. Anyway, like it's, it's totally functional that way, and it makes total sense because yeah. the uptick on slavery during uh, during the sort of Japanese imperial period was like. Way, way higher. Like that. That's the other half of that Wikipedia article. Is like, and then World War Two. Yeah. Um, but uh, the studio essentially forced him to make a version of this folk tale instead, and to focus on uh, two characters instead of just a story about the horrors of slavery. Yeah, uh, I, but you know, I mean, but still, like, I mean, that's what. That's essentially what this. Yeah, tale is about anyway in a lot of ways. So doesn't really didn't really miss his point by very much, honestly. Uh, you know, we're we're being honest. He pretty much does get that point across fairly, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. clearly. Not really, not really, didn't miss it at all, so, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> goodness, is this a dark movie? <laughs> it is, it's really dark. But, like, I think that's what makes it so kind of amazing, right, is that it's 19, what, 54? Yeah. Like, we're, this movie is 100% has to be a reply, you know, a, a criticism of, as you mentioned, the Japanese Imperial War Machine and, like, right. and, and its rampant use of slavery. Right. Um, and, like, to do that that close on the heels, like, is is pretty remarkable, right? Like, that, that just is. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we've dealt with a lot of Japanese directors dealing yeah. dealing with those same sorts of feelings. Um, For sure. And making, making anti-war movies... Or, or movies that show a complicated relationship to the war at at the very least. Right. Uh, but the nice that thing, early, thing about this one... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. That early in getting... I mean, this is only just a couple of years before the Ichikawa films that we watched a couple yeah. of weeks ago, uh, which are both overtly anti-war films, right? Um, well, but that's the interesting thing is they're anti-war films, but they're, they're the thing that we've seen most of the time is dealing with anti-war from like a, a strictly... Japanese perspective on like what the war did to right. Japan, and then and the Ichikawa films do definitely deal with the idea that it's also was a was a nightmare for the people who were occupied. Like they right. definitely do deal with that, but they still are primarily focused on like the effect on Japanese people, uh, and also just war in general and like the sort of pain that is war. Right, whereas this one actually drills down onto a specific element of. What right. Japan did during the war and really lambast that specific activity, right? Rather than trying to focus on like the horror of war, it's the horror of way of what we did to all the people that we occupied, right? Right. And I think that that's important, right? Because drilling down like that helps you, I think, in a certain way, sort of contextualize things more clearly. Because the Chicago films are brilliant, but they're very they're actually quite wide in what they cover right. uh, to the point where it's, it's, we talked about like you, it, it's very easy for people to watch it and, and not quite get the point. Right. Like that can happen. Uh, especially in uh, Burmese harp, right? Um, is that what it's called? Why yes. do I feel like that's not the right name? You're right. Yeah. No, uh, you're right. Whereas in this one, like you cannot misunderstand what the point of this is. I think you can like, misunderstand you what the point of this is if you don't under if you only understand it as a period piece, and not I get, well, yeah, that's always and not possible, understand right? as, that's always possible. Every period piece yeah. is a commentary on the time it's being made, not on the time it's set, right? Right, so. absolutely. I mean, you're right. It, that is true. It is always possible to misunderstand. I'm just yeah. saying that, like, even if it's a commentary on, even if you only understand it as a period piece, it's still definitely a indictment of slavery in the Heian period, right. which is a part of Japanese history. You know what I mean, like. One way or the other, somebody's got something to say about Japan. Right. And a Japan that maybe isn't quite so different from what it was. Right. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, like, well, Over you know. Over a you millennia look at, ago. You look, at, you look at, like, the Imperial War Machine and its sort of haphazard taking of whatever bit of Japanese history justified whatever bit of thing they were doing at the time. So you've got, you know, you know. Literally, post major restoration, we're talking like fucking days later. They're like, "Well, we need to prove that it's okay for us to take over Korea because 
um, we want to do that. Uh, right. So let's uh, let's talk to well. First of all, let's talk to the Americans. Find out how they did that whole uh, murdering all the native peoples thing. Yeah. Let's get that on lockdown. Uh, let's also justify it by saying, well, we did conquer Korea once before a long we time did it ago. Before, so I guess we can we do it own again. It. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we technically own it. Uh, and it's just this whole stacked up list of shit where it's like whatever they needed, whatever they needed, like um, uh, a. Uh, a classic example that's used in one of the textbooks that, or one of the books I use in class is, is the, the, the sudden uptick in the use of the Hagukureso, which is a uh, Japanese quote-unquote martial arts textbook that was written by a dude who never fought in any wars and knows nothing about anything. Which uh, one? Hagukureso. I'm uh, sorry. Is that, that, that's just, the... I don't, I don't... It's I forget what it's called in English. I just know it. Uh, let me... I think it's called Hagakure, right? Yeah, it is. Sorry, I was. I it's a long. Just story. straight up in the shadow of leaves or whatever. Yeah, sorry, I call it the Hagakureso on accident all the time because there's literally a building in town called the Hagakureso, oh. which is literally the building of the. Which is a Korean form. barbecue joint. <laughs> no, it's it's a hotel, but like uh, I always do that. Yeah, the Hagakure is like, it's just it's just it's just garbage. It's just written by a dude who doesn't know anything about anything. He was a fucking scribe, working in like. The, it's just it's not useful and uh as as a you know it's no book of five rings or whatever right like yeah um and so i've read it uh, yeah i mean everybody does but it's still garbage <laughs> uh, it's got some it, it yes it has some real wild takes about like i don't even know like fucking using um makeup or something there's yeah, like there's no, i remember the, there's like some passage that really stuck out to me as a kid that's like uh, Master So and So one day decided to do this, so he applied some rouge, and like again, this is like using whatever the nearest English translation is, and it's like uh, everyone else, uh, you know. And then he put on some more rouge. The end, because yeah, Hagakure no, yeah. is literally just a collection of like two to ten second or two to ten sentence like snippets that range anywhere from like totally non sequitur advice column to. Uh, like aphorisms to supposedly inspirational short story things, none of which make any goddamn sense half the time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's like the dude never fought. The dude was not a samurai. Like I mean, what you know, yeah. he wasn't actually, and like never fought in any of the wars because all the wars were over by the time he was even born. And right. He writes this book about Japanese samurai like ethics. That's not. That's just basically garbage right and so was it him that said that like the 47 ronin were actually a bunch of fuck-ups or yes was yeah, he it is exactly <laughs> he's him. quoting i think dude. he's quoting someone else like in it yeah but, but it's like i like, think it's like a it's literally like a trump level of quotation where it's like <laughs> people are saying that the 47 people ronin are, yeah, bullshit some, no yeah. he's, he quotes some master that i bet never existed that, that probably but, never existed yeah exactly yeah, yes, it's all bullshit he is the like guy that. it's he, i knew it was either him or someone else that Again, quoting yeah, no, someone did, yeah. else for plausible deniability. Uh, <laughs> yeah, says totally him, forty-seven yeah. Ronin actually sucked. If they were real samurai, the second their their boss got, uh, they would have just charged in there and murdered everybody. They would have yeah, literally yeah. just gone beast mode and all been cut down immediately. And if they never, whereas like, whereas generally in Japan, the the forty-seven Ronin are are meant to be as, are are generally construed as like the ultimate samurai, just in the sense of yes, like following the all the rules at the same fucking time. 
somehow yes, they literally spent decades or whatever like in furtherance of their like vendetta yeah and like there's sure a it, there's an right. apocryphal tale that where no one's really sure if it's true about them calling the police ahead of time to warn them that there might be fires like, yes. So that, like, just in case we don't we don't damage anybody else's property when we go in here to chop this dude's fucking head off. Um, yes. So the point is, though, the reason I bring this up is that this guy, um, oh, yes, Hagakure, the original yeah, hot sorry, yeah. collection, the Hagakure, yeah. like, literally comes only becomes popular in Japan right in the lead up right. to uh, sort of the imperial expansion and World War II because. While it is garbage, hot garbage, it does say exactly what the imperial right. government wanted people to start believing about what it meant, which is essentially you must 100% without fail die for the emperor. Yeah. It disappears for 200 years. Yeah, and, and then and, also shows yeah, I mean, the up book again was, the book in the Forrest Whitaker independent <laughs> film Ghost Dog. <laughs> like, where, it, real, where, where the movie, I'm not kidding, the movie literally periodically quotes Hagakure. Oh, up Jesus on the Christ. I've never seen it, uh, but oh, it's delightful! Like, oh but, my God, Pat, you have to watch. Ghost Dog. I should probably watch this, I guess. But the but the point the that Rouge, I'm, at I'm not is kidding. Is that, the Rouge the Rouge quote shows up in Ghost Dog. Oh shit! Uh, <laughs> okay, I do have to watch this. Uh, but but the point I'm the point I'm making is just that like they would just I mean at that time period would just pull any hot steaming pile of garbage out of history that they needed to just justify whatever they wanted to do. Right. And this is a big example because the book was basically actually became unpublished for like 150 years or some shit like that. Yeah. Like literally no one had touched the book. It was not a success when it was published because everybody looked at it and was like, this is hot garbage. Um, like, but the 47 Ronin are good. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Following. Like I, I, nobody liked any of the takes that he had in it when it was published. Yeah. Because also no one was fighting wars anymore because it was the Edo era and like wars were fucking over. We're done with this. He was shit. the Candace Aston of his day. And, and so and then then they, but then Japanese government found it and they're like, well, we're going to start publishing this and distributing this to literally every soldier because it says what we want. And, and so like, you know. Did slavery make you know the idea that like the government has a right to have people indentured to its service? Yeah, sure, it showed back up because that's it served the needs of what they wanted to to, sh- to say at the time, and yeah, you know, and and actually, in gr- mu- as far as I can tell, in much greater, in significantly larger numbers than even was present during uh, sort of the early medieval. So was there was there a move to try to historically justify? Uh, Enslavement, conscription, uh, conscription for sure. I mean, conscription you don't conscription, really need a historical uh, justification for conscription. But just they a did. But that's the weird thing is during the Ma- after the Meiji Restoration, they did because the one thing they wanted to be was a country of precedence based law. Okay? okay, they that's one of those weird takeaways they got from America was like, well, this is how the American government works. They didn't realize that we'll just do whatever the fuck we want <laughs> right, at the time. Right. Um, so like, oh, well, everything has to be based on something. So we have to prove that it already happened, that it's already okay. And so like, for example, a standing army of conscripts was proven to be reasonable because they had one fucking during like the fucking 600s, which is around (laughs) this time period. So they're like, oh, well, the the emperor did conscript troops when the emperors had, when the emperor had troops in the year fucking 650 or whatever. I forget the exact time. Yeah. But that's like, well, they're like, well, that proves that we can have conscript troops. Cool. We're on, we're good to go, guys. Like, that's literally how they did everything at that time period. 
and not not and also including the idea they that's how they proved that they should be able to take over Korea, and that's how they proved that the Koreans were naturally uh, that they were taken over naturally meant to be uh, meant to be servants for the people who who conquered them because that was precedent and not just this time period like that happened multiple times throughout Japanese history where like oh well we took them over I guess they're our servants now. Oh boy, good, <laughs> done and done. Yeah, no, it's it's a oh, it's a mess. Oh my god, you should literally. We talked about this the other day, but one of the things that when I read it, like I lost my mind, was literally the Japanese sent a certain number of uh, sort of not ambassadors. I don't know what to call them to go to America to help draw up the papers that they would use to justify their imperial expansion. Yeah, into Asia as a way of as sort of a manifest destiny, but for Asia. Yeah. Like literally it was co-drafted by Americans who had essentially also co- you know written the uh the manifest destiny sort of uh right. justifications for the United States as well. And of course, you know, the uh the Germans themselves at the same time were coming to America to to learn yeah, about no, some it, things yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, we were we you know, America was the kings of that that kind yeah. of of that kind yeah. of shit, right? It's awful. It's all just awful. But yeah, slavery has a has a history that the they came over to America <sighs> and went to the Congressional Library and rented a copy of So You Wanna Have an Empire. But like but the the funny thing is is it was it was so much worse than that because they're like you know, there's this whole like thing that happens at the time where they're like Oh well, Japan's the only the only Western Asian nation is one of those things that was like kind yeah. of band bandied around right at the time, and it's like, well, what does the only Western Asian nation need to do? Well, it obviously needs to protect these people by taking them over and protecting them. Air quotes. And then yes, you they know, went they went they went over to the Library of Congress and rented a copy of White Man's Burden. Basically, yeah. And drew out and crossed the line through White Man and wrote Emperor. But the thing is is it's worse than that because it wasn't just renting the copy. It was literally getting the dude who wrote the book to be like, "Hey, you want to help us write our version of this?" <laughs> and he was you like, wanna, yeah, "You want to help out, us out cross here?" Cross out for for he did. Yeah, he said, "Look, we're we're working on this new tech. It's called Find and Replace." <laughs> yeah, right, white exactly. Man put Emperor for black people put Korea. Yeah, basically, yeah. And, and, and you know, I mean, it's amazing that the sort of America's legacy of of doing that, on, you know, within, well, not just within America, because all over Asia and other places like that as well, but, like, it, it kind of we, weirdly sort of tentacles out to cover other places. It's, it's the whole thing is just a hot, just a hot mess. Just the worst thing that's ever happened. Yeah. So anyway, this movie. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. 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 You guys. Hit, you guys. You guys. We, this movie does stumble onto a thing that I. That I. Well. No. I'm glad. Passionately think about a lot. I'm glad Donovan said that this week because it's been our catchphrase for the last couple. Sorry. <laughs> well, like we keep doing Japanese imperial war films. Like, what do you people want from me? It also explains why, like you said, his initial thing was a. Uh, Trying to do that, basically. Yeah, yeah he just uh, wanted to Trying do to that, make a right? overtly yeah. anti-imperial army, and they and the government was like, yo, that dude is still alive, you, you know, right? Like, the emperor literally is still alive? Like, no, of course you can't do that. Yeah. So instead it becomes the, the story of, uh, of our, our siblings, um, Anjou and Zushio. Is that his name? Yeah, that's his name. 
Uh, yeah, Tim. I, <laughs> Tim. Yeah, Tim. Um, we just kind of just that do that horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing, another thing, uh, Mizuguchi was very interested in was uh, the plight of women in contemporary and historic Japanese right. culture, um, which uh, <laughs> it's a weird thing uh, because this movie in particular, and uh, you know, we've only seen Ugetsu from him elsewise. Uh, but uh, this is a movie where the women do what they want and do what they need to do and declare autonomy, uh, but it still ends in tragedy. So, right. Uh, well, I mean, all, all almost all tales about women in Japan end in tragedy. That's just right. like a given, basically. That's right. That's it doesn't just end in tragedy; it ends in that'll teach him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, this one; these movies are kind of special in the sense that that's you know. Uh, I wa- if you watch that sort of special feature by that historian, I thought that was really really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he basically lays it out that like Mizuguchi uh, has a very different motivation, which is he- that still happens in these films. But like you're still supposed to be rooting for those women, yeah. Unlike the other most of the other ones in the uh, in the sort of that Japanese pantheon of of wi- women rebellion movies, where it's like you're not supposed to be rooting for that, that right, woman, right? You are supposed to be rooting for them, and you are supposed to respect Anju for making her, her, her heroic sacrifice um, yeah. in order to guarantee, but in order to guarantee that her brother makes it to freedom, but in order to make a guarantee that her brother and the uh, old sick woman who he is also helping make it to freedom too, right? Right, and, and and that, and I think that's a really consider uh, like a really important thing is that like every woman in this. I mean, there's a lot of suffering to go around in this yeah. movie, but there are like that that older sick woman literally just makes it out fine. Yeah, this is the origin really of the how many levels of blank are you on, my dude? You are like a little baby meme. It is people. It is the children in this movie running into other <laughs> slaves and going, "How many levels of existential misery are you on right now, my dude?" And then Basically. someone says like four, and they're like, "You are like a little baby. Watch this." <laughs> and then they just replay their childhood and their father's exile, on top of the fact that they're slaves. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, right? But like, you know, if you, again, if this is meant to be a critique of Imperial War Japan, like, it, yeah, like a bunch of people who had very normal lives suddenly found themselves as slaves to the Japanese empire, right? Like, right. Who were just going around doing their own shit. And then one day like, Oh no, now you're, you know, you're a slave to the Japanese empire. Like sucker. Welcome to this life. Yeah. We're, we're going to work you to death. And then, uh, you know, that's going to be that, uh, right. You know, and then you're never going to be able to be repatriated because, you know, another war will start in your country almost immediately afterwards. Uh, please, please direct forward all of your complaints to the following department uh, being left out in the woods to die. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> you, uh, Padori, brought up the Sato, the historian, who is another bonus feature on uh, on the DVD here. Um Another thing he mentioned is that uh, Mizuguchi's his his formative years uh, really helped shape his view of women in Japanese society. Uh, it, his mother was 
not well off and raising a lot of kids alone. Uh, his sister had to become a geisha in order to help support the family. Uh, and he himself felt like his very existence uh, was responsible for some of those terrible things well, happening right. to and, and, his and sister. It was to a certain extent, yeah. right? Like his sister became a geisha to support the family, right? Like right. that means that like her suffering is directly yeah. responsible for him being able to do any of the things he's doing, right? Like it's it's not wrong. Yeah. Like this analysis is not incorrect uh, about sort of the wake that his life left on the people around him, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily his choice. It's not a thing he actively did to them on purpose, but, you know, it is right. still. Right. And, you know, to a, to a similar degree, um, reflected in the, in the plot of the movie, you know, uh, Zushio clearly has a at least notion of responsibility for what Anju did, right? For for her right. yeah. for her walking into the he doesn't know that she died, but he still lives he lives his entire adult life uh up until the point where he becomes the governor, uh with his one driving idea being to overturn slavery to save her, right? Not knowing right. that she had died a decade before. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's exclusively just to save her. I do think that, like, it is also a general idea oh, yeah. that, He like, still saves this everybody, is, this is, right? Yeah, that, like, <laughs> but, this is something that needs to be abolished. Because, like, he yeah. could have just bought her. Like, that's you know fair. what I mean? Like, that's a thing he could have just done. Uh, but he, he... His motivation, I do think, goes deeper than that, which that's, is, like, to no, free all true. the that's slaves true. in that place. Right. Um, even if he can't slave, you know, even if he can't free all the slaves in Japan, he can certainly, right. he knows that he can at least get to the point where he has the power to do that. And to to the critique of Imperial Japan in the 20th century, what he says to the slaves when they're free is very important. You can go home or you can stay here and get paid. Right. right. Well, and, and, you know, and that's, you know, that's even... That whole thing is even more fraught because, you know... Yes, he's also... He's like, now, we will replace slavery with the far better system. <laughs> Neoliberalism. Right. Now, to be you can fair, go home yes. or you can stay here and become the first girl boss. <laughs> well, I mean, and then, you know, again, if we're if we're being really, really practical and we're saying that this is a direct critique of, um, of uh, Japanese imperial uh, behavior, uh, yeah, I mean... Specifically focusing on Koreans, uh, a really high number of Korean uh, slaves were taken during World War II. The, even the even now, the word "slave" is not used for that yeah. because people find that so distasteful. But like that's what they were. They call them like laborers, but like come right. on, like we all know what this means. Yeah, uh, but like they most call of, them uh, cough high, cough laborers. Cough. Yeah, cough. basically. Yeah, and about sixty percent, I think it was. Like I don't remember exactly what I read. About sixty percent returned home to Korea. To literally just be there for the war, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but another forty percent, especially the ones who were from the northern areas, basically couldn't, um, and so stayed in Japan and then faced another fucking you know fifty right. years of racism. Right. That uh, uh, and and non citizenship to this day are not citizens of Japan, uh, 
are, are have a special permanent residence where they are automatically afforded permanent status, but are not technically Japanese, despite having only ever lived in Japan and only speaking Japanese and knowing basically nothing about Korea. The devil's in the details of the you can go home or you can stay here and yeah, work exactly. for a wage. Well, exactly. And, really and to be and fair, that's true that's, for those slaves in this movie, too. That's true for American slavery, too. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Uh, there was there were the abolitionist movements that just wanted to get all of the black people out of America and send them back to Africa as if uh, the majority of them hadn't been born here. Uh, right. And then, yeah, and so then post-war, yeah, that's a the, wild uh, idea. <laughs> yes, the, the return from whence you never came yeah. argument yeah. Uh, yeah. that Lincoln himself was <laughs> right. in favor of for a good chunk of his life. Until, until two days before he was murdered. Uh, but... Uh, uh, anyway, uh, and well, then the, the alternative, there, right? the alternative, the the stay here uh, and work. Uh, unfortunately, the way that got codified was uh, in Maryland, for instance, where the children of former slaves were contractually obligated by law to uh, to work on their parents' former masters uh, for a wage, but to work for the people who used to own you. Uh, right? Yeah. No. It's all we. You know. And they. Uh, yeah. All. The answer whenever whenever you replace slavery with like really shitty capitalism is basically yeah. just oh wow we made your life so much better. Yeah. Here you go. Uh oh, just... yeah. Um that's part of the march to the sea. Uh Sherman uh it's field order oh what is it? Field order 15. Uh, during the march to the sea, Sherman had so many. This is when when Sherman, General Sherman's marching across the South, uh, burning everything. Uh, right. There were so many slaves either escaping uh, as he approached, or or in the aftermath of having been there, uh, joining up uh, that the camp was just overrun uh, <clears throat> with people who could not fight, uh, even the. You know, a lot of them wanted to fight and wanted to. <laughs> we're all like, "Oh yeah, we're on board with this. Let's go, let's go burn Atlanta." Um, but uh, while they were in Georgia, Sherman issued Field Order 15, which is literally the only government document uh, that promises 40 acres and a mule, uh, and was put into practice. Uh, and those those escaped slaves were given land, were given the tools to work that land, and allowed to work it until after the war. Uh, Congress was all like, no, no, Sherman didn't have the authority to do that, and uh, took all the land back and gave it back to uh, to the plantation owners. Yeah, uh, America, terrible. Yeah, that's <laughs> us. Right. Um, but yeah, so so the uh, you can stay here and work is not necessarily a uh, a good promise. Uh, though I do appreciate that uh, after being told that the slaves immediately burned down. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. I love the response. It's like, oh, we know what to do here. <laughs> party, party, party. Yeah, like we're going to burn this shit to the ground, yeah. god damn it. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and wouldn't you too? I mean, like honestly, like let's really – one part that's where the I felt, only logical outcome, right? One part where I was very conflicted on this film is that there is – I think that whole sequence also reads that these people didn't know what to do with their freedom and that's – that's bad. 
Yeah, that is bad. But alternatively, really, really depends on your sort of mental framework that you approach the right. movie with. And right? I don't know because that you can watch. Alternatively, the rest of they the knew movie. exactly what to fucking right. do with their freedom, which right. is burn this shit yeah. to the fucking ground. I don't know if you can watch the rest of the movie and still be in that framework when you get to that scene, but it is possible to read that scene alone uh, out of right. context. Uh, yeah, which is not a great way That's to read true. something, but is possible. Uh, Sato also talks about a lot of the uh, framing, a lot of the visuals in this movie being uh, reminiscent of uh, uh, Japanese traditional still painting tradition. That's yeah, definitely true. Yeah. Um, which is obviously true in looking at it. <laughs> looking at, looking at it. I particularly like the uh, the way Anjou entering the lake is shot from a distance yeah. um, through the trees. Uh, he does a lot of long takes uh, where he sort of encourages his actors to uh, explore the full space, uh, which is interesting, too, because uh, he apparently hated uh, hated um, location shooting. He, <laughs> he didn't really, according to uh, Tanaka, uh. he would prefer... A set piece. And in fact, the final sequence uh, where he finds the mom on the beach, they filmed him approaching her on the beach uh, and that long crane shot of him walking through the village uh, on location. And then when they actually are talking to each other and it it's the close take of the two of them on screen together with the, with the same uh, cottage in the background... That's on a yeah. set. They just rebuilt rebuilt the same hut Jeez. on a set because he didn't he didn't want it. Um, and for someone who's so interested in wide angles and a lot uh, and things in the foreground, uh, according to Tanaka, oh. he Mizuguchi really did not care about background and and for that scene in particular, as far as he was concerned, it could be a white wall uh, because the the point of the movie was in the uh, relationship between the actors in that moment. Right. Um, which is fair, uh, but interesting. Uh, also interesting, uh, comparing him to Narusa, uh, here very, very rarely is a single person on screen. And if two people are having a conversation, they're definitely on the conversation, having it, both of them together. Um, whereas with Narusa, it was the way Narusa shot... Well, is uh, you know one they person wouldn't even necessarily be, even <laughs> right? be around? Each they wouldn't other, even yeah. necessarily be be on the set at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, uh, there's a there's a guy named Donald Ritchie who we've quoted before, uh, who uh, is an American. Uh, he died a few years ago, but he is a, a scholar of Japanese film, um, uh, who. <laughs> Probably could be dismissed in a lot of ways, but uh, uh, Richie talking about Japanese films said you could introduce Western audience to Japanese film through Kurosawa, and if you got them hooked on Kurosawa, you could move on to Mizuguchi. If you got them hooked on Mizuguchi, you could move them on to Ozu, and then if they developed a taste for Ozu, <laughs> you could get them to watch Narusa. Um, which is interesting in the Criterion Collection that we've seen more. Ozu than we've seen Mizuguchi uh, 
and we've only seen one movie from Nerusa, and I believe we'll only see one movie from Nerusa. Right. For the yeah. Entire. Well, and that's and I, you know, I mean, that's just that, you know, that's that guy's opinion, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, honestly speaking, I find Ozu probably the, like, possibly. Okay. Well, obviously, you know, Kurosawa, right? Like, you especially, you know, if you get into like his more, you know, his more modern films, right? The 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 ones that deal with uh, you know, modern Japanese life, they're very they're very easy. To, yeah. to 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 get through right like they and I find Ozu films you know similarly sort of just easy to get through right yeah I mean easy to understand what's going on and, and get into uh, yeah to that regard I feel like this is what we've seen from Mizuguchi is a little harder to get into than Ozu Ozu Ozu's dealing with a lot of complex emotions, but he's dealing with them in the modern world, so it's, it's right, different. Right, which is very right? easy, yeah. Um, it I just mean, is easier for people yeah. to understand. Yeah. Um, Neruse, I don't even... I'm sure there is an understanding of him in the context of Japanese film uh, that would be different, but like we talked about when we talked about When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, Neruse really feels more like... Uh, more like Italian new neo realism or French new wave. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I would actually find that you know, while you and I were probably decently well prepared to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know that just rando American audiences would be able to like. Right, I don't know right. what I don't know what they make of that. I don't. I have no idea because that that seems tough. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. to get through. And of course, Richie would be talking to an audience who were already familiar with. French New Wave and it's a, right. You know, he's that's not, true. Yeah, he's he's making an argument to American audiences who are already into film to get into Japanese film. Um, so you know, there's that too. But uh, and you know, it's certainly post World War II Japanese film. Maybe there's still uh, remnants of of racism and and they were our enemies and. Not something. To yeah, for into. sure. I'm. I'm sure that's a part of it. And you know, you know, I, I, I. Who knows? I. I'm not really in a position anymore to know yeah. how long or how much that that continued to play in a, you know, have an effect. Like that, the relationship between the United States and like, like just general people in the United States and Japan has always been a bit confusing for me. Yeah, just top to bottom because like, the the sort of turnaround on that seems relatively quickly but then i still see like like i was literally on the internet the other day and i had i saw a bunch of assholes having a conversation about whether or not uh like calling a person a jap was a racial slur and i was like yeah yeah it is guys like like but we call people brits all the time like context is everything here folks right right context is, is everything that is not the same thing oh man and I was like, "How is this? How is this a conversation somebody's having right now? It's fucking 2019. What is going on here?" Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, that Richie quote was brought to my attention by Adam Spickerman uh, in talking about uh, in a conversation we were having a couple of days ago. Uh, so credit to uh, credit to him for mm. bringing my attention to that. Um. And his, I dismissed Richie as as sounding uh, just like an Orientalist. You know, as as like he's got this secret knowledge about Japanese film. Yeah, that's um, probably. I mean, that's not. And, you're probably and right about that. He, Adam, pushed back against that to to suggest that maybe he is making a, 
evangelizing about the importance of Japanese film to an American audience who is still racist yeah. against Japanese film. Well, but that's those that's a very difficult point yeah. to split, right? Those hairs are very difficult to split, too. right? Because it's like, yeah, maybe he's not, but like when you have to like sell a group of people to an audience, like, yeah, it's going to corrupt what you do to a certain extent because you're like, well, right. I guess I have to do this super racist thing to get these people to pay attention. To this. Right, right. It's a, it's, it's a weird thing to have to do, right? Like, it's hard to make an argument about the importance of an entire culture. Uh, when doing so, by its nature, tokenizes that culture to a right, certain extent. Exactly, right. and that may not be his fault, but like yeah. nonetheless, right? That no, whether or not that's his fault or not, the words that come <laughs> out of his mouth are necessary. If you have to use weirdly, weirdly tokenizing racially charged language to like prove your point, even if it's a good point, you still did. You know that doesn't make what you said not fucking. Yeah bad right like i don't know it's just a weird thing it doesn't make him a bad person but it certainly doesn't make what he said good right it's weird so another interesting thing about this movie is it still has a sort of appeal to authority in that you know the the words to live by as far as this movie is concerned are the words of the uh exiled father right yeah well no that all checks out that all makes sense the exiled father who is who is himself a governor um, yeah, like we're we're talking about Japan here, okay? Yeah. Like, and yeah, you uh, talking, you clearly uh, haven't read Hakakure, Adam, or else <laughs> I haven't. Well, but but also we're talking about Heian era Japan. Like Japan's never gotten over the effects of uh, neo Confucianism, and this this isn't even neo Confucianism. A rigid authoritarian a, caste system. For yeah, say. this isn't even neo Confucianism, which like is new and improved. This is yeah. original Confucianism, which is even more hardcore <laughs> yeah. about like hey on the hey on era japanese imperial court was all about confucianism we're like we've done it we found the ultimate governance system uh make sure everybody stays exactly where they fucking are <laughs> and never fucking moves <laughs> you are what you are because that's what you're meant to be and you better not fucking try to change it god yeah. damn it. this guy returned a library book 20 minutes late he and his family are damned to the seven yeah exactly generation. yeah they are they are no longer welcome in our society and like They're, down to down to a very specific generational curse of like the nth grandchild yeah and, and well yeah. And the thing is yeah he's like oh you guys are this thing forever it's just you know it's just it's a mess and like the reality of the matter is is that like the idea that they you know and keep in mind the the resulting neo-confucianism that became so popular during sort of uh edo era and and right before that still harps on the idea that like oh the authority figures are the authority figures because they're meant to be the authority figures pay attention to them they're the only thing that fucking matters so like that 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 strain of thought still runs real real deep in japanese society so um you know He's dude's not a cultural revolutionist. He's not going to fix the. He's not right. like really aiming to fix the whole system here. Uh, but but maybe so he kind of is because at the beginning, yeah, maybe but the guy no. who says that no. initially is exiled. He is the one virtuous leader who cannot stand against the machinations of all the unvirtuous leaders. Uh, and right. then and then later, his son with a different uh, emperor uh, in charge. 
uh, is we have a virtuous emperor and a single virtuous governor, and he is able to triumph against the uh, the evil underlords. Um, yeah, but to be fair, he's told specifically when he brings it up, now you shouldn't do that, that's breaking the rules. Right. Uh, don't right. do that. Like, I mean, you know, it's good. I mean, the movie says that he doesn't listen to that. That He says, fuck it, I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Like, I mean... Is, but then immediately is, resigns. So like. right, because like he's gonna get kicked out. Like yeah. I mean, he's done for. Because the rules, keep in mind, Adam, are the rules. That's fair. They are the rules for a reason. Yeah, has Adam because heard about these rules? Because I don't, I don't like rules. I don't know. I don't think he's heard about the rules. I don't, I don't, I don't think he. Rules are dumb. This is where it kind of goes back to, um, or where you could make the return analogy to like the 47 Ronin which is like they were like our great quest for vengeance that will span years yeah uh, by the way to follow the fucking rules but like we have got a extremely yeah pedantic rule book for how we are going to do this and we will not de- we will call the cops in advance and as soon as we're done we are all we're going to turn commit, ourselves in yeah per <laughs> rules ritual yeah. suicide yeah we got to do it like we've got our we've gotten uh We've restored the honor. It's time to time to end it, folks. That it's... is the uh, that's like the difference in the Hollywood ending between, uh, like that. Like if take that story and make it American, what happens? They get the revenge, and then at the end, you know, the bad guy's corruption is exposed, and like they get to kill him. His legacy, you know, is destroyed because his crimes are revealed. And they are justified. And then they're like, I guess we're just going to have to live one day at a time now with, like, see what our new lives, blah, like, nope. In the no, chat, it's like, kill yourself, all right, yeah. everybody kill themselves. We've done it. Yep, we did what we were here for. The rules. The, the only Sorry, reason the we've been alive is because we have to do this first. Okay. Like, literally, now we should have killed ourselves through. months ago, years ago. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't because job number one was still... Uh, Yes. Getting that super necessary revenge, then we can kill ourselves. Like yes, been... the, the difference between it is like, instead of like, all right, now what do we do with ourselves? And then somebody looks at the camera and says, I guess we'll just find out one day at a time. And in the Japanese, when they look at each other, and goes, oh, finally, we can slice our guts open and let our intestines <laughs> spill out. Oh, well, we've been waiting <laughs> All forever. together as a big group. So is the Hajikura uh, complaint about the 47 Ronin that they didn't commit suicide fast enough or that they didn't no, commit they, revenge? Well, so they, what they were supposed to do was futile charge so oh the setup for 47 run is ridiculous but like they they should have as soon as their master was murdered immediately commit harakiri or whether that yes they did not instantly futilely throw themselves that's what it is that's that's the main that's that's a little better i guess (laughs) the main hagakure argument is that they should have just thrown their lives away right then and there charged in and just died. For Gone them. on a suicide like that, mission instead of committing ritual. Yeah, instead of actually like planning it so they could be successful, right? Like his argument is that the planning is not truly Bushido, which is which is a wild ass thing to say, right? Because again, this is a dude who's literally never fought in yes, anything. This guy's argument was that they took the coward's way out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by, it absolutely by is. committing a multi-year should... revenge scheme. Right, because also they committed seppuku instead of. Just dying on the swords of their enemy, who they should have just charged in and, yeah. and tried yes. to kill. They, f- they failed to take the appropriately aggressive action to to. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a bunch of stuff I want to say in Hagakure that is very much like, uh, you know, if you have the true Bushido spirit, like there is like 
again, the the book is kind of internally contradictory because yeah, there are lengthy there are lengthy payons to you know deep Zen meditation on X and Y existential philosophy. And then the other thing is that if you have the true warrior spirit, you will not think you will you will instinctively act <laughs> instantaneously to any um, oh no wonder know, situation or incident, and you will reflexively take the Bushido option of act immediately to uh, avenge oneself on slights to your honor slash etc. No yeah, wonder, and, uh, and never have any consideration for your own life. Like that's yes, that's you will throw madness. yourself away. Uh there is a there, one of my favorites that I'm pretty sure is Hakakure, although it might have been one of the other ones, is that uh he recommends that you spend that you dedicate you set aside some time each day for meditation specifically on the subject of Having yourself sliced open with swords, getting run through with spears, getting your head cut off. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that's like. Hakure. Yeah, I'm I'm ninety percent sure that's like also having Hakure, your yeah. entrails spilled out on the ground, having a sword cut through your rib cage and slice your lungs in half, and drowning in your own blood. I certainly uh, so that you will be just sort of like psychologically and existentially prepared to get fucking cut immediately, <laughs> and you won't hesitate out of some pussy ass. Uh, concerned that dying from sword blows is extremely painful <laughs> because you will have, you know, you'll have thought about it an awful you've lot. Thought so you've thought about it enough that you've willed yourself into being good at it. Yeah, I mean, yes. the thing about the Hagakure, I mean, there's a reason why everybody when Hagakure came out just like kind of laughed at it and <laughs> yeah. then ignored it. Like, it was not, it, there's a reason why everybody in the era that it came out was like, well, here's some hot garbage. This guy's fucking uh, like talking about rouge? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, like, it's just, it's just nonsense written by like, what would am- essentially amount to in our modern day be like army cosplayers, yeah, like those dudes who like dress up and like go shoot guns and like uh, didn't you mean, join the you army, mean the American but, like, police. Well, I don't specifically mean the American police because he's not even there yet. Like he's <laughs> because not because he hasn't actually level. killed any unarmed black teenagers. He's yeah, exactly. Uh, he's it's more like the people who you know, like you know, the people who join those like t- like fake militias, militias and stuff yeah, and go shoot yeah. guns off in the like in the woods and stuff i know he's basically one of those that's essentially his whole thing right like he he's born after peace becomes the standard of edo era and keep in mind edo era peace was peace like it was under a boot heel and it was uh filled with r- uh, rice riots but they weren't battles between samurai they were yeah uh the peasants want to eat this year fuck them <laughs> how dare they um so like that's a different kind of thing right like so there's there is a no reason why wars. so much of uh cultural filmmaking uh like fiction anime video whatever what have you set in edo that focuses on samurai that are born in that era invariably has people being like uh to think that we could like we're all born in the wrong era like we would, all of our skills are worthless. It's just training in dojos. Yeah, because like, yeah, yeah. We we thing, right? uh, we fantasize about our immediate ancestors who at least got to draw swords on other dudes and and use this stuff rather than carrying their swords largely as ornamental right. uh, status signifiers. Yeah, it's literally just as yeah, basically a badge saying like, "Yep, you're a samurai. You get to do this right. shit. Like you get to uh, go to this office and do paperwork." <laughs> So yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, like cultural like I, you know my my deranged scheme is that I will be the one that 
returns us to the age when the samurai actually did something and I'm going to be the one to do X, Y, or Z that will, uh, you know, finally make, take these swords and remind everyone what they're for sort of a thing. There's a lot of that in in popular culture set in that era. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's unfortunate because that, that is a, you know, even, even media of that era during the actual Edo era, like the more lowbrow media was that. Yeah. Like it's an, it's, it's, it's an, in my opinion, understandable existential crisis of it is. what is the point but, of having a, lot a warrior of better cast. Art, a lot of better writers dealt with it in much more meaningful ways yeah. than, than this asshole. Uh, <laughs> yes, right. Because like a lot of them dealt with it and saying like, well, you know, you're, you know what the main purpose of a samurai was is to serve, the emperor if that means you know doing this thing instead of that thing or whatever you know uh you know it, it you know you do what you're supposed to do because it's what's necessary right to serve your lord right so i mean it's i don't know how correct well we've 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 got our opinions pretty well cataloged on that, <laughs> that joke right. we've we've talked about that one in the past yeah it's uh, hard for me not to, to talk about it because i find tie it, it back into the movie somewhat this yeah. is your uh here is your uh i don't know your your like counterpoint to that which is like the existential crisis of what do you do with a warrior cast nobility in an era with like literally no use for a warrior cast uh which also by the way like not particularly common pat probably would have a better idea but there is some stuff um i've seen a a few shambara movies that focus on basically the burgeoning cast of policemen yeah, uh, yeah, and their yeah. tension with the samurai order because the policemen are basically the actual—they don't get to yeah, carry no, it, swords, it is, but they and, are. And there are there's legit the tension law. in Japanese history about that too, because like, yeah, specifically like the samurai are supposed to follow laws too. Their laws are just different, and then you get in the fact, but the the police only apply to the peasant class. They don't actually apply to samurai. Like, don't it's it's very like that. That arrangement there is for, there like, is an archetype. There's really like wrong. a pulp archetype of the noble yeah. uh, Puritan police officer who yeah, there is. rages against his inability to bring flagrantly corrupt, abusing their caste system samurai to justice because he is uh, hamstrung in his ability to effectively arrest or prosecute them. Uh, and you know, invariably, a film denouement is he just fucking kills him. But uh, the to bring it back to this movie, there's your uh, answer is like, well, what do you do when you don't have this cast? It's like, well, on the other hand, you don't have this. So right. <laughs> you, you like, yes, getting rid of the uh, feudal system uh, and enforced peace that removes this kind of bullshit uh, probably for the best. Not that, again, the Tokugawa Shogunate didn't get up to some wild nonsense. Oh, um, yeah. I, yeah. See, it's also... Just- uh, I think we've talked about it before, or I brought it up before, but um, Thirteen Assassins, yeah, uh, is literally all about uh, like that contradiction of what do you do if you are trying to uphold your samurai code in an era where the Shogun's nephew is a sociopath who. <laughs> Yeah. Right, violates all of the tenets of well, the so-called and, and honor where code it's, constantly. Where, where it's actually technically illegal for you to draw your sword. Also, like where, like literally, like 
you're not legally allowed to actually use your sword for the thing. You know, like by the time you yeah. get to mid to late Edo era, like it's there's enough restraint put on on uh, samurai that like they th- if they were to draw their sword to enact any of the bushido code they would auto well, that doesn't exist at the time keep in mind because bushido isn't even a phrase that was coined until after the major restoration but like um it 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 had to, you know that that whole idea of ven- you know honor and, and vengeance and sort of stuff like that if you were to try to act on that you would become essentially a rogue samurai who would have to be hunted down by other samurai because you broke yeah. The rules and the rule is you don't draw your sword and kill at all by the time you hit mid to late Edo era. Like it's just against the law. Uh, to that regard, another crazy thing to think about. <laughs> to that regard, I Edo think- era is just that now, like fifteen-year-old uh, famous viral sound clip of the guy <laughs> screaming, "You broke the rules! You broke the rules!" <laughs> yeah. Um, to that regard, I think a very interesting thing about this movie is that the. All of the violence is oppressive violence onto the slaves. And even right. even when he gets power and overthrows the system, there's a lot of threats of violence, but there's not anyone killing anyone over this change of power. Uh, unrealistically so, right? Yeah, especially this era. Yeah. Very unrealistic. Sancho is so. removed like, I mean, from power not... by a bunch of guys tying him up really fast. And, and as soon as that, he's tied up, all of his men flee. I guess, but off screen. So who knows? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what's going. Like, do you think that's just like censorship? Do you think that's just like? I think it is almost surely. I, yeah, you don't. I guess it's you know. You'll never know the answer to this, but based on what's already been brought up about what he wanted to do with this film, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if they were like. Oh yeah, you cannot have them just. You can't put the idea in people's head that the correct thing to do with this guy is immediately fucking gut him with a fish hook. <laughs> well, I suppose right, that's right, fair, yeah. but I don't know that Mizuguchi would have even wanted to do that. I don't know. Yeah, that I don't know given how much his he would be into that. Somewhat, kind of stuff, right? yeah. somewhat dubious moral of the film. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that everybody deserves happiness. Yeah. Yeah, and then the whole like, well, you know, it's this is what he he non. It's like that guy could just come back. Right. Like. Presumably he right. is imprisoned, I, but but then there's a lot of well, questions. Well, I mean, and then and then when when you know when uh, when you know he's not the governor anymore, of course the next right. governor could just like unimprison him. But of course his house got burned down, and all the slaves slaves have already run away. Uh, so I mean, I guess it it's semi effective, right? Like yeah. he could certainly turn around and start doing this shit almost immediately. Again, the fact that they yeah the the way that like the rebellion happens is yeah like some guys come up to him and put a rope on him he goes oh dang it yeah it's fine it's i guess i'll surrender the entirety movie, yeah. of my existential Listen, he raison does, he does yell you can't do this a couple of times yes he you're right he does so that's totally we all know the 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 ironclad uh method yeah if he if he really wanted to shut them down though he should have screamed uh, you broke the rules, you broke the rules, you broke the rules at them, and then they would be ethically obligated yeah. to stop. So um, the uh, the future French New Wave directors who all worked at Cahiers de Cinema at this point really, really loved Mizuguchi possibly more than anyone, uh, uh, any other Japanese director at least. 
to the point where Ugetsu wins the Silver Lion at the Venice International Film Festival in 53, and Sancho wins it in 54, back-to-back. Right. Um, which is kind of unprecedented. But do you... I have a question for you. Yeah. The, they are... I, let me let me double-check. French New Wave directors, yes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've, we've talked considerably about... Uh, Weird French Orientalism, right? <laughs> That's like, fair. This That's is a thing fair. you and I have talked about a yeah. lot. I think. Is this? Are we about to go talk about Les Samurai or no? <laughs> I basically, but I mean, like it's the whole thing, right? Like we've seen a number. He's of got a wicked trench coat in that movie. I'm, I we give we Les Samurai really a pass for the, that. The, the nature of Japanese-ness, but without yeah. any Japanese people, please. <laughs> That's fair. Thank you. Actually, that that brings me to one of my favorite things on the Wikipedia for Sanjo the Bailiff. There is uh, some information. Uh, two of the producers for the Thin Red Line in 1990. Uh, I was going to say, which one? Commissioned Terrence Malick uh, to that write one. an adaptation of Sancho uh, for stage. A stage play that was then directed by Andre Waja. Um, with really, Oh, they, they actually went through with yeah, it. I yeah. assumed you were going to no, say they exists. commissioned Terrence Malick to write something and then <laughs> fell asleep five no, pages into reading no, it. No, they exist. It exists. It, it went. It did not make a Broadway debut. And kind of quietly disappeared, but they did at least do uh, uh, one uh, one version of it. Um, costumes by Eiko Ishiaka, lighting by Jennifer Tipton. This is a like who's who of uh, stage production at the time. Uh, but my favorite thing is uh, sound by Hans Peter Kuhn, choreography by Suzushi Hanayagi, and a large all Asian cast. <laughs> which they have to say because that's not a given. <laughs> that wouldn't be a default for yeah. a movie set in, in Japan. Yeah, yeah And they also rather explicitly do not say in all Japanese or in all Japanese American cast. Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> not to be not to be confused with one of those small yeah. all Asian yeah. casts. A large all Asian cast. Yeah. Uh Malik himself uh directed a Los Angeles uh, production of it on a smaller scale in spring of 94. Uh, but plans to reduce the play on Broadway were postponed indefinitely. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I would be very interested about, in yeah. seeing a Waja-directed yeah. stage version of a Terrence Malick script based on Sancho Bellif. Uh But not interested enough to build a time machine, so... I'm asleep already. <laughs> Just thinking about it. Uh, but but asleep and crying at the same time. So there's that. That's yeah. Or or fine. I'll cut to the chase of uh, every Malik movie about an hour and a half in. Oh, it's this again. <laughs> oh, we're doing all right. We're doing. We're this not again. inviting. Okay. We're not inviting Donovan to talk about any Terrence Malick films. Yeah, we've we, we've learned something very important. For the future, you literally Unless that's could what go we want to talk about and grow to fruition your own tree of life before the film tree of life is over after you hit play. <laughs> well, good news. Um, unless that's what we want to have happen on the on the episode, yeah. just keep that in mind. That's fair. That's fair. I will make a note of this. Uh, this is Mizuguchi's eighty first film because that man made a lot of movies. Because he's a, a Japanese director, I feel like in directors of this time, oh yeah, uh, in yeah. Japan is like those guys were banging them out. 
Uh, yeah, me and me and Adam have talked a lot about the idea that like, oh, you're a Japanese director pre, I guess, like 1970s. Yeah. Oh, you made 17 films a year, huh? Right. Yeah, that checks out. Right. That's all. It's kind of crazy accurate. that um, Kurosawa is prolific, but not quite in this, like in that. Yeah, category. He, he had some very special powers that nobody else had. With regards, he made to, like, a lot of fucking made... movies, but he was not banging out like seventy. Yeah, years. I mean, yeah. he wasn't a strictly studio director who had to like make. Oh, you're on contract to make six movies a year for yeah, the rest. The old of your studio system was life. wild. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it was really. It's actually amazing because whenever you look at their filmographies, you're like, "Yep, wow, seven hundred fifty films, huh? Cool." Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, you get to that point where you're like, I guess that's how they got good at it, because yeah. holy shit, you know? I feel like they must also have started fairly young. Like in oh, yeah, a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them start very young. Yeah, and Mizuguchi, um, oh man, Mizuguchi died young, too. 58 yeah. he was when he died. Uh, he yeah, that's in- one of the fascinating things is like, oh, he started, he made films all the way up to the 50s, and you're like, what yeah. happened then? And you're like, ooh, oh. Oh, he died. Yeah, born in 1898, yeah. he first directed in 1923, and IMDb lists 99 titles uh, as directed by Mizuguchi. Um, and that, yeah, who knows? Honestly, especially those IMDb's for um, these like early Japanese directors, who knows if that's complete? Right, there's probably like, a lot of lost stuff. That's the not number of on lost there. films from Japan yeah. pre like 1930s is so high. There could be countless lost films in there, too. Given the politics of this film, I would be very interested in seeing his 1941 version of the 47 Ronin. Yeah, me too. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, that's my dog shaking his collar. Uh, the Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see that uh, because I've seen a couple of film adaptations of 47 Ronin. Um the sort of straightforward one from the 70s that had a couple of famous uh, sort of like genre Shambara actors of their era. Yeah. Um, I've seen, I think, an older one that I don't think is that one you're referencing. And then, of course, the Keanu Reeves modern classic. <laughs> yes. Uh, right. Yeah. Where they fight a witch dragon lady at the end. Um and go because to the of secret race do. of crow face people. I have uh, never seen the Keanu Reeves one. Now I kind of want to watch it because it sounds <laughs> it is, insane. It is, Pat, it is the wildest. I will give you the following like bullet points. Uh, transparently a movie that was Harry, rightfully Hiroyuki Sonata's movie. And then Western studio interference said, fuck that. We need an American. You need a Western actor to anchor this. It can't just be a famous, excellent Japanese guy. Yeah, a super famous training. Japanese guy. Yeah, a extremely famous Japanese, award-winning Japanese actor uh, with all the right training already. So they put in Keanu Reeves, um, who's basically the 48th thrown in, I think, technically, because he's nice. just some guy. Uh, <laughs> nice. He is not technically part of the retainer household of so what's the, he fucking do? I, okay i gotta watch this this sounds fucking it involves them insane. going to the secret race of tengu uh who apparently what? were keanu reeves foster family before he was found by the lord but that gets uh, what in the beginning by the way they are just 
bird faced bad CGI monks, oh but God. instead of having actual bird faces, have like quasi beak faces, but it's still all flesh colored. Uh, oh that's God. super creepy. Uh, yes, they are. The Tengu CG alone is just boy, what are we doing here? <laughs> uh, then uh, Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat, uh, whose name escapes me, uh, their actor's name. Carrie, I think his first name is. He's like a surprise. I cannot investor. help you with this. I have no uh, the idea. The guy that played Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Uh, is the bad, treacherous lord. And he has in his employ, by which he uh, like d- creates the political scandal that requires, the, that betrays the good lord at the beginning, a shape shifting witch who can turn into a magic dragon at the end. Wow. Uh, it is, you've yeah. It is worth. I saw it in theaters because after I saw the trailer, I was like, "Well, I mean, I I've got to see right? this." Yeah, yeah. yeah. It I, is. I it is. To, expect, I have to more. It is an incredible mess and a. <laughs> it sounds. Like, just, I gotta watch this. It is such a film that was obviously hacked to pieces and reassembled to put, uh, to up Keanu Reeves's role in it. Wow. And, to the detriment, obviously, to, of course, the immediate detriment of the entire fucking narrative. I'm really curious. I, I should go look up, like, what the Japanese reaction to that was, because, like, we're talking about a story that literally every Japanese person knows. Like, straight up, just knows. Like, cultural, you know, just... Keeps, built- keeps uh, sort of shocking to me, considering they, uh, you know, have inserted Keanu Reeves, raised by the Tengu Westerner, uh, into this... Keeps the ending. Keanu Reeves and everybody else fucking commit suicide, like oh in a mass park here scene at the end. Wow, that's so wild. they still stick the landing of, and then they all fucking kill themselves in a fucking courtyard. So they just but, added a bunch of extra garbage in the middle, and they're like, but it yeah, still and ends, right? there's a big dragon. He fights a dragon. Somebody Fuck. fights the dragon witch at the end. It's yeah, it's a whole thing. I think they oh. give. I think uh, in a part that is probably left over from the original cut. They give Hiroyuki Sonata uh, the the Shang Tsung kill at the end. So they <laughs> give the leader of the Forty Seven Ronin the killing the treacherous lord. Like he gets to keep that. Um, I believe because this might be when Keanu Reeves again is sword fighting a shape shifting dragon witch outside. Yeah, right. Of course, <laughs> gentlemen. If I may, can I make a bro- no? By all means, uh, go I, ahead. I, but I have important I information. Do- yes, I want to make a proposal. <laughs> For a possible like special at some point uh, for the bonus episode, uh, which would be Japanese movies with weirdly unnecessary white people in them. <laughs> I think we could handle that. Um, That's a very easy one to do. Does like, the last samurai even... count? Because it's not really a Japanese. I mean, it's well, clearly a I was kind of debating movie made that. by was... the West. Right. I I was kind of debating that. I wasn't sure we should think about the the premise because Filmed another option would be even largely in New Zealand, the last samurai. Cuz like, you know, there's there's uh although some of the scenes were shot in my in the town right over not very yeah, far from of my it. house. I I I remember It's very famous. That location like, yeah, is very of, famous. That's a lot of probably great unseen Japanese filmmaking and then Yeah, there's like, a lot of Most of the battle scenes right. were filmed in New Zealand. In that regard, I have another mountain. piece of important information. Okay. Right. Uh, yes. Adam, what are your two pieces of information? So 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 in, in order of unimportance, uh, the 2015 adaptation of 47 Ronin called Last Nights, starring Clive Owen and Morgan Freeman, is a thing that exists that I've never heard of so, before. 
Um, Me neither, but it also <laughs> points out that we could possibly just make 47 Ronin remakes that involve yeah. white people for some reason. All right. So, as a list. Uh, I, have, I have found some information on Mizuguchi's uh, adaptation of 47 Ronin that I, I think is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, it was commissioned okay. by the Japanese military. Uh, oh, really? Oh, it's got to be yeah. right up there in the, they, you know. They wanted a ferocious morale booster based on the familiar story. Uh, instead, Mizuguchi chose for his source, oh, Mayama. This is literally like we are unwrapping the why there yeah. were dudes on those islands like 40 years yeah. later who were still trying to fight the war. He chose for his source, Mayama Chosingura. Uh, a cerebral play based on the story. Uh, the film was a commercial failure, was released in Japan one week before Pearl Harbor, and the Japanese oh, military and most audiences found that the first part was too serious. It was a two-part film. Uh, the studio and Mizuguchi both regarded the project as so important that they still put part two into production and released oh, it. Oh, shit. Uh, oh my god but the film was not shown in america until the 70s um oh, this is so wow yeah inagaki did a version in 62 which i'm betting is the one donovan seen that's older uh but i don't that i can't say for about certain right. i mean there are there are so so many versions yeah of course i've ronin that like I, I don't even know. Like, it's just some endless number. It's a million. Yeah. Uh, Mufune has a bit role in, uh, in Inagaki's version. Um, there is also the 1971 52-part television series. <laughs> I appreciate that the Wikipedia article for the, yeah. for the cinema and television adaptations of the 47 Ronin uh, tale starts with, um, the play has been made into a movie... At least six times in Japan, so even they don't know how <laughs> right. many. Yeah, nobody right. knows. Nobody, conf- yeah, I've read that page before. Yeah. I, I love that that Wikipedia page. Like, it's like I, it's, at least six. It's yeah. like it could be it could be because again, lost films, right? Like who knows how many times it was made into a film like prior to sort of accurate record keeping, right? right? Like it could be could have been there could have been there could be twenty versions from pre like nineteen thirty. And we wouldn't know. It's just crazy basically yeah um (laughs) yeah i think it's ultimately very important to understanding what mizuguchi was trying to do with this film in the fact that it's called sancho the bailiff uh (laughs) instead of anything about the actual main characters of the movie yeah for sure uh sancho is surprisingly not in this movie very much but if you if you name a movie after your villain you're probably trying to tell your audience something (laughs) Right, yeah, um, for sure. I which mean, is, of course, I'm yeah, sure. His motivations are very clear. I am thinking, Adam, specifically of the 1978 film uh, Swords of Vengeance, colon, Fall of Akko Castle. Oh, okay. Which really buries the lead that it's the 47 Ronin <laughs> yes. story. Right. <laughs> yes, indeed. I wonder if that fits into the category of at least six adaptations <laughs> of this film. Starring <laughs> Sonny Chiba. Oh, nice. Toshiro Mifune, like, as, like, fifth build. Uh, <laughs> wow. Just some other guy. Yeah. There, Just this it dude was, also. Yes. Well, by that point in 78, like, yeah. you know, starring Mifune on his, in his elder years, you know. Right. A, a much older Mifune yeah. whose, who's, you know, primetime years are probably at this point. 
approximately five to ten years behind him. Yeah, Mufune was, what, 58, almost 60 at that point. So. Yeah, it would have been pushing 60 yeah. by this point. So, yeah, starring Mufune is not the main yeah. guy. Yeah, it's uh, not that surprising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but, yes, Sonny Chiba being probably the big, yeah. what was the big name. And a guy named uh, Yorozui Kanosuke. Yorozuya, excuse me, Yorozuya Kanosuke, who was, is, gets lead billing. Huh. Uh, but it's not the name that I was know, the one but... that I remember seeing. Okay. Which, which was probably Although, fine. funnily enough, Mufune himself did play uh, one of the leads in uh, a 1962 yeah. version. That yeah, the Inagaki yeah, version. Yeah. Well, you kind of have to. It's like it's Not like a... doing Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Everybody's in so there. You have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, the uh the history on Mizuguchi's version of 47 Ronin may may make it something I need to to look at. The yeah. the fact that it's a two-part film. Uh oh, God would be so painful. It's going to be Oh, yeah, a, really, a total really runtime of a question of do we want to punish ourselves? A total runtime of 2 I think, hours. I think we watched the 1978 minutes. one to see a nice uh like genre film starring late era Mafune yeah. in some bit part and then watch the Keanu Reeves run and compare. Uh I I might have I will certainly have to watch the Keanu Reeves one because it just sounds so so perhaps so batshit insane. Perhaps we do a uh a list uh, a bonus list of random pairings of 47 Ronin films. Oh, God. <laughs> Where we have to, whatever yeah, wins, thing, we watch we two have to of write them. A, we have to watch a double no matter what, and I'm not yeah. a fan of <laughs> having to watch a double. Particularly if one of them is a 223-minute version. Uh, no, we're not doing That's not an option, Adam. That's not an option. That's not happening. Yeah. Nope. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> Well, this has been Hagakure Sucks. Uh, <laughs> I'm Donovan Hill. Hagakure does apparently suck. I'm not familiar with. Yeah, this, you. So. I think I think the last time we did a samurai movie, we got into this as well because yeah, I Hagakure find that... is some wild bullshit. Uh, it is. perhaps historically it. relevant as uh, human culture's first collection of galaxy brain hot takes. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, definitely true. And then and then really on on yeah. For sure, uh, especially I, it like is, it is that useful. really special kind of Galaxy Brain hot take, where as uh, Pat has pointed out, is totally divorced <laughs> from any knowledge about the like actual. Yeah, subject no experience whatsoever. whatsoever. No knowledge, no experience. I mean, yeah. like Book of the Five, uh, Book of Five Rings at least was written by a dude who like famously best swordsman ever. Basically, yeah. you know, like knows what he's fucking talking about. Too old to fight, and also wars are over. Also for him as well. Uh, but like at least I mean, but Hagakure, man, Jesus Christ, <laughs> just the worst. Like, and I just I love it because every time I think about it, it just makes me giggle. And then, but it is also relevant for historical studies because you can find out what what a what some dude thought samurai were like uh, in the Edo era, and then also what the Japanese military thought was important during World War Two. Yeah, yeah, and it's like always clean. Like one of them, there's a whole section on fucking grooming. Personal grooming yeah. is a huge deal in Hagakure, which is fucking wild. It is unsurprising to me, uh, given what you've 
said about that book that uh, that the Japanese Imperial Army, or it, it's more surprising to me that every other army hasn't tried to get everyone to read hasn't it. just tried like, hey, let's just let's let's institute this book. Let's yeah. just give it a different name. Yeah. Oh man, we've been talking about Sanjo the Bailiff uh, from 1954, directed by Kenji Mizuguchi, which is a beautiful, uh, beautifully shot film, uh, a gut wrenching. Mm depressing story which is why we didn't talk about the movie all that much um, yeah i do think not one last snipe at hagakure i'm also pretty sure pat correct me if i'm wrong one of the reasons it probably had all that adoption is there are multiple short you know vignette stories in hagakure where the moral of the story is uh the Nazis were right to say I was just following orders because that literally is your obligation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And no, your, absolutely. Yeah. And your automatic moral defense to anything is uh, there are numerous stories in which someone who questions transparently uh, illegal or or villainous uh, instructions from his lord is the bad guy of the story. Yeah, yeah no, that's so. I mean, that's a big that's a running theme. Is it like it, it, it takes the idea of like loyalty to your lord to like the maximum possible extreme which is exactly what an army wants right that's exactly yeah. what it wants to promote as an idea is like well don't think just do exactly what you're told even if that thing is obviously transparently evil uh yeah for sure it, it, it it's it's obvious why they chose that book like i mean you could just you read it and you're like yep this all makes sense just following orders plus make sure you got some ruse check yeah, new make, ar- sure, you, new army make sure you clip your fingernails often and cut your hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very weird book. Yeah. What a dumb book. Um, yep. But what a great movie. Uh, yes, this yeah. movie was amazing. Actually, I really did. I mean, sad as hell. Yeah. But it's like, Yeah, it is a tough, like, you could never be like, I'm in the mood to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I need to really wind down and relax this it's afternoon. It's been a while Let me for a Sancho the Bale. What do you guys think? Like, yeah, it's... Oh, yeah. Just not pop a this in before, go... a, before a nice date, you know? Yeah. What is... What was the... There was one quote on uh, the Wikipedia from an American critic. Uh, let me find it real quick. Um, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Oh, here we go. Uh... <laughs> Anthony Lane, writing for The New Yorker in September 2006, uh, profile on Mizuguchi, says, I have seen Sancho only once, a decade ago, emerging from the cinema a broken man, <laughs> but calm in my <laughs> conviction that I had never seen anything better. I have not dared to watch it again, reluctant to ruin the spell, but also because the human heart was not designed to weather such an ordeal. <laughs> yeah, that checks out. Yeah, no, yeah not wrong. That guy's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, if you If you can... Find that with like Ichikawa films, my God! Like, if you showed somebody just a like a selection, you showed somebody just like Fire on the Plane, yeah, and like this, like, yep, this is Japanese cinema. <laughs> Go have a good day. And like, what would they imagine? Like, they'd be like, oh my God, what a dark, desolate group of people. Yeah, that's to live yeah, on this earth. You just yeah, you're just like, all right, now take how you felt at the end of Requiem for a Dream. Now you're going to reach that after like 20 minutes. In <laughs> yeah, and then you're going to keep going go for there. another hour <laughs> yeah. and a half. Yeah, then you then you go from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last interesting fact about Mizuguchi, again from that uh, that uh, Sato interview, uh, the historian. Um, the uh, 
he really just left his cinematographers to their own devices, basically. Yeah, that was really he, interesting. He strapped him to he strapped him to cranes because that's what he yeah, wanted. He was a big fan of cranes, but uh, I, I keep the, the description for that is so vague about like why. Yeah, like he's like he liked to get the whole scene and like uh, really show the actors immersed in the thing. Yeah, so he just kept strapping him to cranes. Yeah, it's yeah. like. Like maybe he's just a real big crane enthusiast. But he wasn't. He wasn't real big. Apparently, you know, not real big on planning individual shots. Just uh, and uh, Kyoko Kagawa, the uh, the actress who plays uh, Anju, talks about this in her interview too. About uh, they practice and practice and practice, and as soon as they had a good practiced version, they would immediately do the actual take, uh, so as to right. not to lose that momentum. And the cinematographers basically are just trusted to to shoot it in a way that's going to accurately capture that emotion and it works obviously um well i mean specifically this 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 director specifically or i'm sorry this uh cinematographer is just yeah fucking amazing yeah like the the cinematography in this is just next level fucking crazy good it's just it's pristine like there's just nothing wrong with any shots yes. they're all just perfect uh sato also has a really great quote uh, about uh misaguchi employing a rich variety of grays in this movie uh which is not inaccurate but also just a really really ridiculous it's a really wild thing, thing to, to say. say yeah yeah but but definitely true like i mean like when, right. when like they show the clips to like to point that out and you're like yeah dude's right yeah the like, uh, weird thing to say but totally accurate the contrast between the different shades, it's its obvious that this is a world full of color, even though we are seeing it in black and white. Which, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a phenomenally done it's, it's a very, yeah, film. It's very uh, impressive. He's obviously a very skilled director working with a very skilled team. Uh, yeah. I just, but, but like that New Yorker guy said, I don't know if I could stand to watch this again. Yeah, the human heart was never never meant for this. From yeah. an emotional stance. Uh, but yeah. So thank you uh, once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. Thank you, Donovan, for joining us for this. Donovan, you'd never seen this before. Is that right? I had not. This yeah. was the first one yeah. for me. This was not um, – for some reason, my dad didn't do this to me. Uh, <laughs> By which I mean, have me watch this film at a yeah, young age. Yeah, no actual uh, sword fighting in this one, maybe. It was... I will say, uh, tying it, though, to uh, my childhood cinema lexicon, uh, this movie, uh, the flute in this movie, the <laughs> shrieking atonal <laughs> flute that is blaring through three quarters of this movie, really up there rivaling the wild um, crystal meth uh, induced saxophone playing of Yojimbo. <laughs> yeah. I I, I uh, don't just, I don't think anything ever matches things at the random saxophone. shrieking noise for just at random <laughs> scenes in the background. Uh, but that's yeah, that's as close as it comes to me seeing this as a kid. But yeah, this was the first thing. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, subjecting yourself to it for our sake. Yeah, it was. I yeah, it's a tough watch, yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to Lost in Criteria. And I am, as always, Leon Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick O'Tari Dorgan. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about Le Jeti and Sans Soleil. Uh, Le Jeti, uh, both of these are directed by Chris Marker. Uh, Le Jeti is the short film that I believe, uh, I believe 12 Monkeys was based off of. So we've got some time travel coming up. 
Uh, yes. We always love time travel. Not enough. Yeah, big fan. Not enough time travel in Criterion movies, I'd say. Yeah, I know. The Criterion Collection is definitely, if, I, if you were ever to ask me, Pat, what do you think the, the Criterion Collection needs more of? My answer would be more time travel not conducted by Scorsese. <laughs> yes, yes. Scorsese himself time traveling to make sure the collection yeah, can famous function. famous time traveler, yes. yeah. Uh, that's different than a movie about him. Now, if someone were to make a movie about Martin Scorsese traveling in time. Well, that would be through the looking glass. would be so meta because then Scorsese would have to intervene with regards to the movie about him time traveling. Yeah. And would create some sort of weird meta loop. And Definitely then, a terrible uh, paradox. Yeah, we don't, we, nobody Scorsese wants that. Scorsese goes back in time to defend the reputation preemptively <laughs> of the king of comedy. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Godspeed. Ah. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes? Like us on Facebook? Or support us on Patreon? That's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.